The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, it's Jesse. We're taking a break from new episodes this week while we work on a larger project, but I want to bring you something special from the archives. About a year ago, we ran an episode on burnout. And you know, a year ago, I just thought that the future would feel so different than it actually does. Here we are again in the fall, a lot of us feeling a lot of the same things. And so this week, I'm coming to you with Beating Burnout with Emily and Amelia Nagoski. See you soon. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. So it snuck up on me earlier this fall. We were half a year into the pandemic, six months of being stressed out about everything from COVID to the election to childcare for my toddler. I'd been going and going, zooming and zooming, and thankfully it had, it had mostly been going okay, except that I was just so, so exhausted, a stale feeling, so burnt out. And it wasn't just me. Sarah Storm, our producer, was feeling the same way. I threw the question out to listeners, and you all agreed you were feeling it. Which brings me to today's guests, doctors and sisters, Emily and Amelia Nagoski. They have a great book out. It's called Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. Emily, Amelia, and I talk about what causes burnout. We talk about emotional exhaustion, how emotions work in our bodies physically, and we get to the fix. The fix to burnout and exhaustion and to all the bad feels we're feeling is not a secret. When we feel all the way through them, we get to connection, to the people we love, and to ourselves. And that, it turns out, is how you fix burnout. Here are Emily and Amelia Nagoski. Emily starts us off. So the original definition of burnout from Herbert Freudenberger back in 19, I think, 76, included three components. It was work-related, and it had to do with a decreased personalization, a decreased sense of accomplishment, and uh, emotional exhaustion. And over the next 40 or so years, it became clear that the way burnout shows up in people's lives is different for women and men. And of course, there's like no research at all on trans and non-binary folks around burnout because, because there's very little binary. research into trans and non-binary people's experiences in general. In general. Right. And, and I'm it, sure that's going to get better. But for now, I'm often going to be using this binary language of men and women because that's, that's the where the research has. is right now. Yeah. So it turns out that for men, it's more uh, depersonalization. And for women, it's more emotional exhaustion. And as we were looking at the research, we were like, you know what? It makes a lot of sense that it's emotional exhaustion for women because of all of the work that we have to do all the time, smiling and being nice and meeting other people's needs and expectations and being really in control of the way we present ourselves so that we don't make anybody uncomfortable. And we get stuck in the middle of our emotions because we always had to pretend that our own emotions don't exist so we can create space for other people's emotions. So if we get stuck, that's getting stuck in the middle of an emotion is exactly how you exhaust it. So it's this recipe that 
exists not just in the workplace. Yes, we do that emotional labor in the workplace, but we do it in our homes. We do it with our families, whether it's the children we're taking care of or the parents we're trying to please or the friends we're trying to feel like we fit in with or support. There's barely any time or place that we can be fully ourselves and let our emotions move through and out of our bodies. I... You're, you're speaking my language, right? I, I listen to that as a, as a professional, as a working parent, as a mother. And I think, yes, that feels like my life. What's the relationship between stress, that stress that you get stuck in the middle of, and burnout? We define burnout as the experience of being overwhelmed and exhausted by everything you have to do, and yet somehow still worried that you're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. So when stressors come, the things that cause your stress are piling up into huge mountains and you're still stuck in an emotion because you had to smile and be polite to that guy across the counter from you or who works across the conference table from you and you had to shut down all of the rage and fear that exists in your life because of the times we're living in and the way that the world is right now, that is a perfect recipe for feeling like you're overwhelmed and exhausted. And there are so many stressors that you cannot solve. They're going to pile up. And uh, we're not completing the cycle of stress as it moves through our body. And that is how burnout happens. But there's good news. Oh, right. There's good news. (laughs) (laughs) The great thing about the fact that stress is a phenomenon that happens in our bodies in response to stressors is that uh, it doesn't actually require dealing with the cause of our stress to be able to complete a stress response cycle because we're, we're stuck in the middle. Like we're all holding on to these emotions. Like if you imagine traffic, if you're commuting home, remember back when we had commutes, you would <laughs> either take public Barely. transportation or drive somewhere. And if it's a long, difficult one with really heavy traffic, like your body just gets tenser and tenser. And that tension is there to help you evolutionarily survive a threat, like being chased by a lion. Right. And w- if you manage to outrun a lion, man, you run back to your village like shouting and you tell an exciting story to your family and they jump up and down and you feel glad to be alive and you love your friends and family and the sun seems to shine brighter, right? So when you like get home finally from your commute and you slam your car door behind you, do you suddenly feel glad to be alive and like you love your friends and family and the sun shines brighter? No. You dealt with the stressor, like you got home, you finished your commute, you escaped the stressor, but you didn't deal with the stress in your body. And we need to do both things. Yes, deal with the things that cause our stress, but we don't have to wait until those causes are gone before we start doing things that address the stress in our body. We have to speak our body's language, and that's going to be doing things through the body, like physical activity, like creative self-expression, like connection hugging, conversation. I sort of inherently understand that stress is something I need to deal with. And that's why I have wellness. And wellness is on my daily to-do list. In fact, if I read you my to-do list, it's, you know, answer email from my manager, make smoothie, get half hour of yoga done, right? I work my way down that to-do list and I check off half of the things and I don't feel weller or like I've gotten the stress (laughs) out of my body. Yeah. Achieving wellness is not a thing that ever, ever happens. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Even if I get to the bottom of the list? Come on. Yeah. I know, right? 
I know it's not fair, but like, so wellness is not a state of mind or a state of being. It's a state of action. Wellness is the freedom to oscillate through all the cycles of being human. So it's feeling stressed and feeling safe, connecting with other people and being independent and alone, uh, work and effort, and then sleeping and resting, crying and laughing and in and out and up and down and the yin and the yang and the experience of that whole thing and the, the interplay of those opposites. It's not a state of being, it's a state of action. That, and I would say, uh, if you are like doing the yoga every day, Yoga's super good for you. <laughs> Yoga's so good for you. And what I would suggest is that you're probably doing it in a check it off your list kind of way instead of on a, in a deep, attuned body, purging your rage kind of way. Well, so this leads me to a note that I made when I was reading your book. So you suggest people listen to their body to understand when they've completed this stress cycle. What if you're thinking, I can't hear my body? Girl. <laughs> I was so great at ignoring my body. I had no idea. Like, okay, small scale. We've all experienced like looking up from our computers after being there. We don't even know how many hours we've been there. And like, we really, really have to pee. And we just didn't even notice that that was happening. And we we're finally like, oh, now I can. It, the noise from your body, the signal is so loud that you can no longer ignore it. Your body is sending you so many signals and we are ignoring them. And a lot of us, like me, are really good at ignoring the signals until they are screaming at us. Here's the good news. You can learn how to listen. It's called interoception, the ability to perceive what's going on inside your body. Some people are better at it than others, but it is a teachable skill. But you do it does take some practice. Well, so... Tell me a little bit about how the two of you came to writing this book on burnout. So it all started when I wrote a book called Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. I am first and foremost a sex educator, but it turns out that the best predictor of a woman's sexual well-being is, surprise, her overall well-being. Um, and so there's a chapter in that book on stress and relationships and feelings. And in the six months after it was published back in 2015, I was traveling all over talking to anyone who would listen about the science of women's sexuality. Which this, was everyone. It was right? any people. You'd be surprised. People are reluctant. But Fair uh, I mean, it was going really well. I was having a great time. But this thing kept happening where women would approach me after a talk and say, so all that sex science, that's great. Thanks for that. But you know, the part that changed everything for me was not the sex part. It was the part about stress, about completing the cycle and feeling your feelings. And I was surprised by this. Uh, I knew it was important, but I didn't think it would be the most important thing in the book. So I told Amelia. Yeah. And I was not surprised at all. I was like, uh, do you remember that time that I was hospitalized for basically stress-induced inflammation and the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me and you brought me all that information and I learned this and that information that you're surprised about, that information saved my life twice. Which is when I said we should write a book about that. And here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how much of the book that we're reading was intuitive to you, was about following the, the paths you expected to follow, and how much of it came to you newly? 
None of it was intuitive for me. We thought this was what the whole book would be about. It'd be about the science of how your body processes stress. And as we kept reading the research, we discovered that the real solution, the real answer is connection, is love, is attaching to the world around you and allowing yourself to be taken care of rather than insisting that you take care of yourself and expecting that to be the cure for burnout. Self-care, turns out, is not the cure for burnout. It's all of us caring for each other. And a lot of America in particular really idolizes the lone cowboy ideal, right? This hero who can stand on his own and, you know, a man who is a rock and an island unto himself. That is the ideal. And so, to say that that is unhealthy, that it is in fact killing us, uh, is was very difficult to learn. It was not the answer we were looking for. It was hard to write, and it was hard to live. Like we kept looking for like stress management strategies, and we were reading this really hard science, this affective neuroscience and comparative psychology, really difficult, hard stuff. And what it kept saying was love and authenticity compassion. and vulnerability and compassion and connecting yeah. with people that you care about in a like deep emotional way. And that is not like we come from a lockjaw New England puritanical heritage of white people who do not feel their feelings with each other. Um, and we had to, because the science was just irrefutable. We're confronted with the like fact that this is how you do it. So the hardest part of the book was actually practicing what we preached. Like we transformed our relationship with each other in the process of writing the book. I think that your book has an easy ask and then a harder ask, but yes. the harder ask speaks directly to the moment that we're in and a lot of the burnout that we're feeling. And the easy ask actually sounds hard. It's what we've been talking about. It's this idea that you gotta learn to feel your feelings because until you've learned to do that, you don't have the tools to do anything else. And you have some great strategies for that in the book. Read the book. We're not gonna go over them here. So I wanna get to this idea of feeling your feelings with other people in an honest and authentic way because that is the holy grail. That's how you get to connection. And we've actually talked a bunch about this on the podcast this year. It's become harder to do this, especially with the people that we live with. In the time that we've been speaking to people during the pandemic and the need to isolate quarantine lockdown, we've observed two extremes. People who really thrive in isolation are doing well in isolation from the rest of the world. But if you're an introvert who's isolating with your family, you then have no boundaries anymore and you don't actually have any real isolation. And on the reverse side, uh, extroverts who ordinarily thrive by connecting in the real world are now isolated from that kind of energy. So this is not a situation that's good or natural or nourishing for anybody. And connection is uh, another one of these natural oscillations, the cycles built into being a mammal. We are designed to oscillate into connection. It can get really deep into connection, but then to oscillate back out into autonomy. We are not designed to like go deep in connection and stay connected all the time. Like that's just not how we're built. So in addition to being about introverts and extroverts, a third of households in America are one-person households. So there are all these people who are having to work really hard and be creative to find any kind of connection. And then there's other people who are at home 
all the time with their families. And even if their families are like their favorite people in the world, you're with them all the time and you need time alone separate. Like you need to be able to lock the door and be by yourself, go for a walk and be by yourself. And the expectation that you will just stay together all the time is uh, not good for anybody. It's literally not how our bodies are built. No matter how delicious the food is, it feels good to stop when you've had enough. And no matter how excellent the company is, it feels great to be alone when you've had enough company. It's you need it. It's really, really true. I would imagine that there are opportunities in your book for us to deploy some strategies to both be more in touch with our with our own feelings, but also maybe then to bring more to the people that we spend every day with, even if we do spend every day with them. There are some really clear exercises about ways you can connect to each other. And when you do an exercise that's recommended by research psychologists. It sounds sort of trite and silly, but actually when you put that kind of a frame around it as a let's do this thing these advice people told us to do, it actually sets a boundary that is comforting. So for example, uh, the 30-minute stress-reducing conversation is a thing. First, one person talks about their day and the other person listens in a way that is all about like empathy and I can't believe that Goomba said that to you and we're on the same team and you're not trying to help solve their problems. You just want to understand really deeply and cheer them on. And then you switch. And at the end of it, you just feel supported without feeling in any way criticized, without feeling in any way like you could or should have done a better job than you did, just held in like, we're a team together. And it doesn't matter how exactly long, if you have five minutes each or 15 minutes each, uh, what matters is that each person gets to speak for long enough that they get through the things that are hard and they're not stuck at their end of their time, like at peak stressed outedness, uh, mm -hmm. but they get to talk all the way through until they kind of get through the stressed part of the talking it through. But that there is kind of a bookmark at the end to say, and now here's a reason to stop and the other person will take turns. You know, so much of what you're talking about speaks to going all the way through an experience to letting yeah. it have its natural arc. What are some of the strategies that you have to help us to figure out how to do that? Another way to ask this is, you're really asking me to hug somebody because I am not a hugger. So one of the important things is if it is not a strategy that works for you, find another strategy. Almost no strategy works for both of us. We have very little overlap in what's effective for us. So if you are not a hugger, don't use the 20-second hug, for example. Um, if you are not an exerciser, don't use physical activity. If you're not a crier, cool. And if you're not a crier, that might be because you're stuck in the middle of a bunch of stuff. So try on the possibility of uh, creating a context to like allow crying to happen if it wants to. I, I know there are people who say crying never solves anything, but they don't know the difference between dealing with the stress and dealing with the thing that caused the stress. Rarely, sometimes, but rarely does crying ever actually deal with the thing that caused the stress. But boy, can it do a good job of completing the stress response cycle. It lets your body release all the stuff that got activated in your body so that you can be calm enough actually to address the thing that caused the stress. Well put. Yeah, I think how the answer to how do you move through the tunnel and complete the cycle is you have to do a thing. Do a thing. And a thing is anything that's not nothing. I think a lot of the reason Emily was kind of gesturing towards where if you're not a crier, maybe it's because you're stuck. There are barriers 
to these things that we know are good for us. We know that sleep is good for us. We know that exercise is good. We even know that connection and creative self-expression are good for us. But there is a barrier that gets in the way, this thing we call human giver syndrome. But to shortcut right through all of that context, it's just that society tells us some of these things are acceptable and morally superior, like physical activity is definitely good. You should definitely be doing that. And the world will applaud you for your efforts. But sleep? How dare you? That's lazy. You spend time in bed when you could be helping something. You could be helping someone else. So selfish, not just not efficient. It's a waste of time. You're spending that time sleeping when you could be double checking somebody's homework. I mean, it feels to me like you're talking about capitalism and patriarchy right here. I mean, that is the problem. Yes, that is the barrier. (laughs) Well, I think we should name it then, right? Let's break this down and make it very simple for people who perhaps did not, like me, go to a liberal arts college that introduced the word patriarchy on the first day of school. During orientation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Whole sessions on it. How does this manifest differently for women and why? We took our frame from a moral philosopher named Kate Mann. She wrote a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, and it outlines the logic of misogyny. And the foundation of misogyny is this uh, situation she describes where in the world there are two kinds of people. There are human beings who are morally obligated to be their humanity, to live and express their humanity, and to acquire whatever resources are necessary to accomplish that morally obligated goal. On the other hand, there are the human givers who are morally obligated to give everything they have, their humanity, their time, their lives, their bodies to the human beings. Guess which one she says the women are? It's the human givers. And being a giver is not inherently dangerous or bad uh, or bad for you. Being a human giver, in fact, if you are surrounded by other givers, is a way to thrive in an environment. Being a human giver surrounded by human beings who feel entitled to everything you have and are uh, is a recipe for burnout. And this is actually, it was the most important thing I learned in the process of reading the book was to notice what it feels like to be in connection with like a human being who was entitled, competitive, acquisitive, felt like they can just have anything I choose to give. And the more I choose to give them, the more they feel entitled to take, the more they expect me to give versus what it feels like to be in connection with a fellow giver who, when I give them something, they feel motivated to give in return, which makes me feel motivated to give more in return. And we have this mutual energy. Uh, And I learned that if you can withdraw your energy from connection with those people who feel entitled to take anything you have uh, and transition it onto connections with fellow givers, it really changes the energy in your life. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll talk more about where burnout comes from and how to get through it. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, 
and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were FinTech developers. We'd been a FinTech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a FinTech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. We're talking today about burnout with Emily and Amelia Nagoski. I love this idea that there are human beings and human givers. And I wanted to know, can you change? Can you shift from human being to human giving or at least allow for a little of both? This is a question that uh, Kate Mann talks about and that Emily has talked about in classes. And when uh, when she asked a class full of people, well, what would happen if we were all human beings and we all felt entitled to acquire whatever we have to have? And of course, the answer is poor, nasty, brutish, and short. If we all are entitled to everything, then it's just a competition for resources. And life is not a competition for resources. Life is an experience to be had and shared with others. You're here not to be productive, but to be you. If you are surrounded by givers, you'll be constantly supported and looked after so that no one will slip through the cracks. So that when you come home from work at the end of the day, if there ever comes a day when we come home from work and you're exhausted and your partner says, you look exhausted, I'm going to go make dinner. You take a bath and get a glass of wine and we'll, we'll have a talk about it together afterwards, as opposed to you coming home exhausted from work and then being like, so when's dinner? We talk about this through the lens of... Uh, gender, male and female, and there's a certain binary quality to it. But it seems like it is best understood through the lens of privilege, um, because if you apply intersectionality to this, whereas yeah. white women, for example, may absolutely be the givers in relation to men, they suddenly become the beings in relation to people of color. Yes. Yep. And it's lots of different layers of intersectionality. Disabled people often find themselves performing as givers to make sure they're caring for the emotions and comfort and convenience of other people and smiling to make sure that they can stay safe. They have to perform this. They have to be the givers who show up in that way. Poor people, immigrants, people who don't speak English as a first language when you're in America, non-Christians when you're in America, people of color for sure, all have to put on a face and make sure everybody else feels really comfortable and okay with the fact that they're in the room. And it's a lot of extra work to do. It's exhausting. Right. And it is important that people who do have any kind of privilege, like we're white ladies, Emily and I are, and we recognize that our whiteness has given us this sense of entitlement to the labor of people of color. That is a layer of our privilege that goes back deep in history. And our job, our work as citizens who care about the world is to turn inward toward that sense of entitlement and to ask ourselves where that comes from and how true is it? And really, what if we acted as givers towards these people who society is telling us we are entitled to? What if we instead ask, 
What can we give to them? What can we do to support and care for everyone around us? One of the most important things we think, it's so exciting that we're talking about this. No one has ever asked us about this before. Really? Thank you so much. We think one of the most important ideas in the book is that you have to heal this damage done to us by this bogus white supremacist, cis-heteropatriarchal, rabidly exploitative, capitalistic culture. Heal the damage that's been done so that you don't inflict that pain on someone else. It is an act of social justice to turn toward your difficult feelings with kindness and compassion and to like work with people around you to heal your wounds together so that you don't inflict those wounds on someone else. Gosh, that's powerful. Even as you describe it so eloquently, like both voices flare up all the time at the same time. The how dare you, how dare me, right? And yeah. and even as you speak, I realize those voices, they infiltrate every communication I have. I mean, I've spent the first half of this interview thinking, did I frame that right? Are they are are they gonna are they gonna think I'm smart? Are they and that that voice, first of all, eradicates any opportunity for connection, if connection is really our end goal. And also, I'm not going to pretend that I'm the only one to experience that voice. I think that we all do. Like, all of us have it. And in addition to normalizing the mean lady, for me, it's Teka, the lava monster from Moana. <laughs> if you've seen Moana, he throws these, like, balls of lava at Moana. That's what it feels like to be on the receiving end of my madwoman. Every madwoman is different, but like the madwoman's whole job is to navigate this huge chasm between who we really are, as Moana puts it, as you truly are, versus who the world expects and insists that you be. There is this unbridgeable chasm. And if you had to navigate an unbridgeable chasm as your job, you'd be crazy too, right? So Very of much. course your madwoman is just bananas all the time, whether it's toward you or toward someone else. And uh, in addition to normalizing the madwoman, I want to normalize the abyss, the cavern, the unbridgeable gap between who you really are and who the world expects you to be. You are never going to be that thing. I am never going to be that thing that everybody expects and demands that I be. How do I is how do I be okay and still never be enough? One of the ways we know how common this is is the fact that we call her the Madwoman. This comes from the book Jane Eyre by uh, Charlotte Bronte. Um, the Mad spoiler alert for Jane Eyre: uh, uh, Rochester is married and he has his wife living as this Madwoman. He tucks away in his attic, and that symbol has become an archetype that rings so true. Because I mean, if you know that when you hear a story that's kind of a symbol for an identity this is where that that um label comes from it's and there's a whole feminist literary. literature from the 70s and 80s yeah. about it uh peggy mcintosh famous for the white privileged knapsack has written about her mad woman and has used this language she's also in fact the originator of imposter syndrome and in her conceptualization, it's not about us just feeling like we're not adequate and we're not good enough and we don't really belong here and people are going to find out we're frauds. It's that the world has insisted that we be something we are not. And so we've right. been forced to put on a show to make mm -hmm. it seem like we are. And so they're kind of right that we are not that thing. But just because we are not that thing doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us. Yeah. You need to be hardest. so prepared with so much knowledge in order to be, to have the capacity to turn toward yourself. 
with kindness and compassion and say, yes, the world is broken. Yes, I am never going to be what it expects me to be. No, it is not my fault. But yes, I am going to try as hard as I can to show as much compassion to as many people as I can. That is actually an impossible goal. And I recognize, God, it's hard. And women are culturally kind of granted permission to show each other kindness and compassion, even though we don't always do it. We're allowed to be kind and generous with each other and patient and forgiving in ways that we are not given permission to be kind and generous and patient and forgiving with ourselves. It is harder than authentic connection with other people a lot of the time. Do you think that this perception that we aren't living up to the world, what the world expects us to be? is flawed in that the world actually doesn't expect us to be anything? Or does the world have an expectation of us? I definitely think the world has an expectation. We can tell because we truly are punished when we fall short. Yeah. Like, so the list of things that human givers are expected to be is pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. And if you fall short in any of those ways, you will be punished by society. So take pretty, for example, as the very first one. If you don't conform to a very specific, very narrow conventional beauty ideal, the world is going to tell you that you need to invest all of your time and energy and resources in conforming to that beauty ideal, or you will not get that job. You will not get the interview even. You will not certainly be able to keep it or get a promotion. You're a uh more likely to be paid less and to be bullied in school as a kid, not just by other kids, but by your teacher. Teachers. Absolutely. Point really taken. I kind of wanted to give you the answer like, yeah, like we just put these, we put these uh, priorities on ourselves and we just make it up and we beat ourselves up and it really doesn't matter, but it actually like, it's real. I feel like I was like trying to say wink, wink, nod, nod, the patriarchy doesn't really exist, right? And you guys were like, mm, right. yeah, no, no. No, that's real. There's a, We know it's real because there's a multi-billion dollar industry thriving on women trying to conform to that very narrow, culturally constructed beauty ideal. We know because people have jobs making the ads to tell us that we have to look like that in order to belong, in order to deserve love. Because it's uh, codified in law, because it's codified in medical textbooks. There is one thing that, as much as you encourage us to really realize that we're never going to be enough and that that isn't what we should aspire to be, you also- Enough in quotes. We will never be that thing. I'm sorry, you can't see the quotes. We will never conform (laughs) to the culturally constructed aspirational ideal. And yet, you hold that purpose is important. That it is actually very helpful for us to connect to some sense of purpose. And by the way, if it hasn't arrived like a lightning bolt in your head, make it up. Come up with a purpose for yourself. Absolutely. Just because the culturally constructed ideal that you're supposed to conform to, I tried to make the quotes aural in that one. Um, <laughs> Just because that isn't actually a thing that'll necessarily fuel you and nourish you to be your best self and to live your most fulfilling life, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't aspire to something. We call it something larger, capital S, capital L. When you engage with something larger than yourself, it gives you a sense of meaning, of purpose and belonging that actually corresponds to uh, very real physical health outcomes. When you connect to something larger than yourself, you live a longer, healthier life. We define meaning as what you make when you engage with something larger than yourself. So meaning is not something you find. It is a thing you make. Um, And just as the mere existence of green vegetables is not enough to nourish you, 
the mere existence of your something larger is not enough to fill you with meaning. You have to engage with your something larger so that you can be nourished by it. But the cool thing about your something larger is that unlike vegetables, it lives inside (laughs) you. You're permanently connected to it. Nothing can separate you from the something larger. And once you know that, it becomes much easier to engage in it because just like exercise and sleep and good nutrition, one of the barriers that gets between individuals, especially women, and something larger than themselves is the cultural pressure to do a thing that the society deems is important. Being of service is a thing that women are, you know, very proud to say that I am of service because that's an okay thing for a woman to do. For a woman to say she wants to leave a legacy, that is not quite as acceptable. And if that is your something larger, leaving a legacy behind, society is not going to be as approving and it's going to be, there's going to be friction between you and the world. The good news is though, since you're something larger, and your meaning that you make lives inside of you, even if it's hard to engage with that something larger, it's still going to ride you with purpose and meaning and a fulfilled sense of life uh, and the improvement in health outcomes that are associated with it. So when you can let go of the thing everyone tells you you're supposed to be and move yourself toward engagement with the thing that really matters to you. You're something larger, which may or may not be in line with what everybody is telling you you should do. So there will probably be some voices in your world, depending what your something larger is, being like, good for you. Um, I do. I mean this in a supportive, loving, kind way. I, as a sex educator, have gone home and started talking about my work. And my mom has literally said, can you not talk about your work at the dinner table? Because I talk about sex for a living. And she is not dismissing my something larger. She just feels like it has a place that it can be. And that place is not family conversation. That's fine. Well, listen, this sort of brings us full circle. You guys said something that I did not follow up on earlier. You said that the process of writing the book changed your relationship with each other. So how? Oh, God, there's going to be feelings if we talk about this. Should we tell the should we tell the Ted story? Let's tell the Ted story. The Ted story sums it up. Okay. Emily has given like three TED Talks, like two TEDx talks and like a main stage TED Talk in Vancouver. And the one in Vancouver is like a very involved process and it involves a lot of communication with the people who are in charge and writing drafts and practicing the talks. And there's a lot of rewriting. There's a lot of coaching. And my talk was about sexual violence. So it was really emotionally intense work. Yeah. So as she was getting ready to go there, I was going to go with her as like her emotional support peacock. Like, I'm just going to go with and be there to be like, good job, whatever. And uh, my flight got changed and she was just like, fine, you should do it because people are going to think that I'm exaggerating. So like you tell them. Like, I know how to manage my stress really well, but I was doing this thing and it was over my threshold. Like I was not coping well. And when I'm not coping well, I get... Um, a little unpleasant to be around. I get mean is the word you're looking for. Slightly short tempered. I (laughs) not the best company. Um, and so Amelia was going to come with me and help me. And there were these difficulties with her travel plans. And I was just like way over my head with stress. I was drowning in it. And I was so far in that tunnel I talk about. I didn't even know how far in I was. And this is the thing is when you get to a dark place, you need help. And so Amelia has dif- difficulties with her travel. And and I'm like, fine, maybe you just shouldn't go. 
maybe I don't need you to go with me to ten. Fine. And she... I, I, because we were in year three of writing the book at this point, and I knew the research, and three years before that, I would have been like, fine, whatever, bitch, and like walked away, because that's all I was capable of. But now I knew, and I could see... I know what's going on and I know what to do. I could turn toward this Teka, like Moana, my hair blowing in the wind around me. And I could be like, you, there's something I can do for you. I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. So I didn't actually literally sing at that point. What I did was I stole her dogs. Yeah. She was like, okay, (laughs) you are over your threshold. I'm going to take your dogs, you're going to get in your car, and you are going to go to the beach. Because I know that this works for her. So, and I'm taking your dogs, you have no excuses, you're you're getting in car, and you're going to go today, and when you get there, you're going to apologize to me. So I was like, fine. And here's the thing, because we were three years into this process, I knew enough that Amelia could see something that I couldn't. I did not agree with her. I did not. I thought, I just need to power through it. I just need to get through it. And uh, turns out she was wrong. Yeah, I got in my car and I drove fuming the whole time. So I arrive and like as soon as I park, I get out of my car and I see the water rolling onto the shore and I can feel my chemistry change. Like my whole body just shifts gears and I immediately start texting Amelia, you were right. I was wrong. <laughs> I was totally over my threshold. I'm sorry. Thanks for taking the dogs and forcing me to take care of myself. And the only reason we could do that, right? Like how many people have a person in their life from whom they can receive that kind of feedback and take it seriously, even when they don't yet believe them? And it's because we had been forced to understand that honest emotional communication is the hokey pokey. It's what it's all about. That was Emily and Amelia Nagoski, co-authors of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. You can learn more about their work at burnoutbook.net. And we're going to talk about burnout this week at Office Hours. How do you cope? Our producer, Sarah Storm, and I will convene, as usual, on Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. Join us. You want the link? You can follow me on LinkedIn at Jesse Hempel or email us at hellomonday at linkedin.com. Okay, now let's talk reviews. They help us so much. So once a month, I like to ask Sarah to come on the show and share one. If it's yours, email us and I'll jump on the phone with you. Help make sure that you're getting the most out of your LinkedIn experience. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Jesse. Okay, so who have we got today? Today we have Elle Gwinnett, and they say, it's like Jesse knows what I'm stuck on and the questions rolling around in my mind. That's exactly what we're going for. If you are listening, Elle Gwinnett, please email me at hellomonday at linkedin.com and let's jump on the phone. Reviews really make a difference for us. So if you like the show, please take a moment to weigh in on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Juliette Ferro, Cassidy Jackson, and Victoria Taylor fill our work lives with meaning. They know who we are. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening.
Emily, the call isn't out there at all. It's, it's inside, inside me. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead, Emily. <laughs> Moana is the Maori word for ocean. She's not called by something out there. She's called by something inside herself. She called herself to cross the ocean and restore the heart of Tefiti. I am a recent convert to the film. With, and now having a toddler at home and looking for good films with strong female characters. Moana, Moana. is amazing. Limo um, Miranda. He's our only hope. <laughs>